Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to see your faces. I've been praying for people that I've never met for a few weeks now, so it's finally to, good to connect some faces with some intercessions, uh, if you will. Um, I am, uh, my name's Rod Dewberry. For those of you who don't know, you've uh, just met me for the first time uh, this morning. This is my wife, Carrie uh, Dewberry. I noticed that you guys have a Carrie also. I saw it in the bulletin, but that one's spelled K-E-R-R-I. My Carrie is spelled K-E-R-R-Y. So don't know if the Carries will get a chance to connect today or not, but uh, always a pleasure to uh, find more Carries uh, around town. Uh, I am one of the pastors at Gospel Hope Church, which is located in Decatur as you've already heard. And uh, so uh, we're excited about what the Lord is not only doing uh, there, but what the Lord is just doing uh, in our city, in the city of Atlanta. And uh, it's a great pleasure for me to be here uh, with you this morning. I want to go before the Lord in uh, prayer before we get started. Uh, Father God, we thank you and we praise you this morning for every opportunity to gather and to share your word. We understand, Lord God, that it's possible, even from what we see in your scriptures, Lord God, for people to say the right things, but it not come from the right place. And it's possible, Lord God, for people to hear the right things, but it not land in the right place in our hearts. And I beg, Lord God, that all of us would take our hearts and hand them over to you, me the speaker, and Lord God, all of us as the hearers, and ask that you would completely, Lord God, um, renovate our hearts and do whatever has to happen so that, Lord God, the conversation that we have around your word is one that matches your will, that your name is uplifted, your gospel is declared, that your word is respected, and that your will is accomplished. And this is, Lord God, our prayer in the matchless and holy name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, Our family uh, most recently, I've gotten back from a small Thanksgiving-type vacation. We ended it um, uh, just a, a couple of days ago, and I'm, there's a little story that will come with that. But before I, I get there, I want to share something with you. Um, I guess back in 2000, um, I started working for a company that had a habit of hiring new college graduates. And so when I got at the company, I wasn't a brand-new college graduate, but I was in my 20s at the time. And every year, we continued this practice of hiring new college grads, new college grads. And so uh, over time, as you can imagine, those of us that had been there for about 10 or 15 years, we started to notice a little bit of a tension between uh, the two groups. One, the younger generation that was coming in that we were constantly hiring, and they were necessary to the lifeblood of our organization. And then, of course, those of us that had been there from uh, some from the very beginning because the company at that time was about 34 years old. Uh, and then by the time we got to, again, that 15 to 20-year mark, we found it necessary to begin to really re-grab a hold of some of our core values. What was it as a company that made us who we were? And what are the core value communications? One of our non-negotiables that we started to communicate in the organization was respecting the past and building a better future. This was a phrase that allowed us to give full acknowledgement to everything that had been built in this organization organization in the past, but at the same time, understand that we wanted to fully value and incorporate the voices of those who was coming in new among us, and that the two groups didn't feel like they had to be on two different missions, even though they were sharing the same organization. Well, that tension of feeling like something is being done away with in the past, or that there is some kind of negligence with new stuff coming in in the future, is a kind of tension that Jesus Christ lunged into fully in the particular text that we're going to read today. And this text is found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. I want you to hear Jesus' words, and it says this, 
Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these, the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom. And whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus preaches these words as a part of his Sermon on the Mount very early in his ministry. And as you can tell by the tone and the words that Jesus is using, there were obviously certain people in town, if you know his story and some of the, some of the pushback that he got from scribes and Pharisees, there are people who believe that Jesus was trying to do away with the original, that he was trying to get rid of or to disrupt the Old Testament, or that he was trying to throw away uh, uh, the law and the prophets. And therefore, Jesus starts out by saying, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Today's passage provides us with some backdrop. And there's, there's probably a many questions that come out of this text that you see, but there's about four or five that I want to make sure we answer. What does it mean for Jesus to actually fulfill the scriptures? What does it mean that heaven and earth won't pass away, or not a single jot or tittle, as it's called, or a yod in the Hebrew, as it's called, not a single yod or the smallest uh, apostrophe or a comma will pass away from the law until all is accomplished? What does that mean when Jesus says that? What does it mean when Jesus says that there, uh, if you relax one of the commandments and you teach others to do so, um, that you'll be the least in the kingdom. But if you do the inverse or they do the opposite, you'll be the greatest. And what does it mean when Jesus says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, that you can't enter the kingdom of heaven? I think these are fair questions for us to be able to answer during the course of our time uh, together this morning. And so when it comes to this whole idea of respecting the past and building a better future, um, I think Jesus is a person who perfectly does this. As a matter of fact, what I hope that we will see in the process of these three or four verses that we're going to walk through together today is this, that in Christ, the church is able to enjoy the beauty of what God built in the past and the glory of what he is doing in the future. I'll say that again, that in Christ, the church is able to enjoy the beauty of what God built in the past and simultaneously the glory of where he's going in the future. And the two of them are not divergent interests. They are not divergent emotions. The two of them are married together in Christ as long as Christ is the person through which we view what God is doing and what God has done. And so uh, as we look at this very first verse, uh, verse 17, let's peer at it and look at it very carefully. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What does Jesus mean uh, when he says that he comes to fulfill them? Well, the first point I want to give you is this, that Jesus gave purpose to the past. Jesus gave purpose to the past. When it comes to Israel, Jesus gave purpose to the past. Now, God had already done, uh, or Yahweh had already done a great job. The covenant God had given them uh, the commandments. He had given them everything that they need, understanding that the law and the prophets uh, were to Israel what our constitution and bill of rights are for us. I mean, there was not a single aspect of daily Israelite life that was not anticipated or, or thought about when it came to their constitution of the old covenant. And so here comes Jesus talking about there might be some new things or some other things that you might have to do. And, and they were they were disturbed by that. So Jesus comes in and says, listen, no, let me give you some additional purpose to the past because there's certain things that you're not really seeing that God was doing. Well, how does he do it? 
Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 through 25, gives us some great insight as to how Jesus actually fulfills the Old Testament and does not come to abolish them. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 through 25, it says, What purpose then does the law serve? Uh, it was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, the mediator does not mediate for one, but, for, but God is one. Is the law against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law which had, uh, been, had given life, truly righteousness would have come by the law. But the Scripture uh, has confined all under sin that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept by faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor." One of the core functions that the law served, according to Paul in this passage, is number one, is that it provided an actual label to our sin. There is, a, there is something going on in the human heart that did not honor God, and the law actually supplied a label to that. That was important. But the, the law didn't just come to supply a label to our sin, but it also, according to the same passage, came to give us, to, to lead us to the Savior. So it added a label to our sins. So now this thing that is, that is this disruption between my relationship with God and, and my relationship with my fellow man, my relationship with my, 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 my wife and my children, these things that are not right, there's an actual label that is assigned to them. What is that called? But that same label that the law gave to my sin also would lead me to understand my need for the Savior. But the law also did something else in total. It level set our sense of self-righteousness. In other words, as you looked at the law, all 600 plus laws, an individual is overwhelmed realizing that there's no way that I could live up to all these standards all the time and never break one. And so the total weight of the law actually level sets us and allows every one of us to realize that we are not capable of pleasing God on our own. And so the law does have purpose, but the purpose of the law isn't just to defeat us, but to also define how much we need Jesus. That's exactly what the law did. It gave, Jesus gave purpose to the law because we now see our sin very specifically. We see our need for the Savior very specifically, and we can see that none of us, whether I'm a person who broke one law or whether I'm breaking all the laws, that I'm equally unrighteous and in desperate need of a Savior. But he also gave purpose to the words of the prophets. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and following. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ was to come to them, indicating that what he testified beforehand, the suffering of Christ and the glories that would follow, to them it was revealed, not to themselves, but to us that were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things which the angels desire to look into. What Peter is saying there is that what the, the prophets anticipated the day of Christ, anticipated this great and glorious gospel, but they didn't, say it, they didn't see it themselves. And so Jesus finally provides 
something for people to look at and to, to, to drink from this appetite that the prophets had created throughout history. Understand when Jesus says he comes to fulfill the law and the prophets, I want you to see this word picture. The word there in the Greek fulfill literally means to fill up like a picture with water. So imagine if you will, if you saw a water bottle, it's, it's clear, it's crisp, but it has, let's say it has no water in it. The marketing of a water bottle is awesome, right? And sometimes if you drink, I don't know if you drink Aquafina or if you drink Avion, but if you ever go to the gas station and you look at those water bottles, I mean, there's this very picturesque, paradisical uh, place that even looking at the label makes you thirst, right? I mean, just to see a well-put-together water bottle makes you thirsty for something. And how disappointing is it to open it and to find out that the water isn't doesn't taste great. Well, Jesus shows us that the water bottle is the law. It's this framework that created an appetite for something much more filling. And so Jesus says, I fill the bottle. I fulfill the law. The appetite that you have for righteousness, the appetite that you have to know God, you thirst for that just by seeing what God has set before you. And Jesus says, I now fill the bottle. And we know that Jesus also advertises himself very clearly to the woman at the well as being what? Living water. So throughout the scriptures, throughout the law, the Lord is not just labeling sin to defeat or to depress us or to level set our sense of self-righteousness, but to literally, through the prophets, cultivate a thirst and an appetite for Christ that only Christ could satisfy. And so when Jesus says he comes to fulfill the law and the prophets, that's exactly what he means. You've been looking at the labels on the water bottle. You've been looking at the pot, but you've not yet had living water. And Jesus says, here it is finally. I didn't come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it. I'll button it up this way. In Christ, not only is the Old Testament finding its fulfillment, but in Christ, we also can understand this, that my personal past is able to get repurposed. Have you found these, uh, uh, and how many of you watch these shows, like the, the Flip a house, build a house, decorate a house show, right? And one of the new things that's really in vogue is the whole repurposing of wood, right? You'll be going through and they'll, they'll find some old barn in the back and they'll take the wood and build like a full set of cabinets in the new house, right? Because what they're saying is that the base material is awesome even if the old structure is no longer functional. And so not only is that applicable to what God is doing in his church by saying we cannot abandon the Old Testament. We're not abandoning what God built in the past, but what we're looking at is God is doing something different, but he's using the same principle material. We're not abandoning what was old. We are simply building what God always intended. And so, but this is not only applicable to the New Testament church as, it is, as you will, it's applicable to us as individuals. As, as individuals, there is no condemnation for us in Christ. According to Romans chapter 8, verse 31, uh, the scripture clearly tells us that the Lord, he says, what shall we say then uh, uh, to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against his elect? It is God who justifies. When it comes to bringing a charge against us, or when it comes to justification, this is God dealing with our past. Whether it be the church collectively or us individually, when we come to Christ, God repurposes our past. Our past no longer becomes an indictment against us in Christ. It actually becomes a part of our testimony for Christ. It actually becomes a part of the stuff that we can look back to and say there is no waste in God's economy. He took an old broken down barn 
barn that may have been filled with all kinds of, of ruddy things, and he has now made that something for him to use in his kingdom today. There is absolutely no part of our past, if we are in Christ, that is negligible or that is obsolete. God wants to use it all. As a matter of fact, consider the testimony of the Apostle Paul, who ardently worked against the church to destroy it, to tear it down, to stop it, to drag believers into arrest, who consented to the death and the murder of, of Stephen and was moving forward like a steamroller to do that everywhere else. And it was the Lord Jesus Christ meeting him on a Damascus road that took all of that energy, all that effort, all that knowledge of Jewish history, all of that understanding of the law, and then turned it around and made it, repurposed it into an apostle. God in Christ repurposes our past so that it is beautifully and wonderfully and gloriously used for him. There is nothing about our backgrounds that we need to be ashamed of if we are in Christ, because the Lord is prepared to repurpose all of it. Now, I must say, this does not suggest that we just live like the devil and say, well, I'm just giving God some nice wood to work with in the future. This is not what grace is for. God doesn't call us to take his grace for granted. But if we live a life of faith and the Lord knows that there are times when we fall, he is prepared to use our past as part of our future purposes and great testimonies of what's happening in our life. So, let's look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota and not a dot will pass away until all the law is accomplished. I don't know if you know this or not, but in the King James, it says not a yod, not a jot or a tittle. That is the smallest possible character in the Hebrew language. In other words, it would be equivalent to, but more powerful than, our apostrophe. In other words, for us, the apostrophe just simply delineates, you know, who something belongs to. Is it a possessive or, or whatever? Is it possessive plural or possessive singular? But in the Hebrew, something as small as that could radically change the nature of a word. And Jesus says that not even something that small will pass away until all is accomplished. Jesus is one of the, the greatest when it comes to helping us to respect the past to yet build a greater future or a better future. Uh, I told you earlier in my opening remarks that the family had just recently gone on a small vacation. One of the places that we went to, we were out on the West Coast, and we took a tour of Paramount Studios. And one of the first things that they wanted to show us in Paramount Studios, which I thought was kind of odd, but it is just beautifully rich in detail. And that is the tour guide stopped us right in front of a parking lot and said, look at this parking lot and what do you notice? And we said, we notice cars being parked in the lot because it's a parking lot. And she says, no, look at it again. What else do you notice? And then it was like this special blue asphalt or whatever the case may be. And it was kind of concave or sunken in. And then there was this other big humongous screen, two times larger than the wall on this, uh, on this edifice here. And it was like, well, what are we supposed to be noticing about this parking lot? And she told us, it said, this is the place where we do all of our ocean scenes. If you remember Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments where they parted the Red Sea, this is where it took place. And it's this shallow little parking lot that probably can take, you know, it was about this high at the top and about that low at the bottom, but it was this place. And she says, ever since that day, we continue to use, we continue to use this particular parking lot to create waves and to create ocean scenes. Just this beautiful depiction of how something that was used in the past still gets perpetuity in utilization in the future. 
It, it, it still fulfills one of the great purposes of the movie industry. Even if there's cars parked in it today, when it's time to make a movie that demands an ocean scene, they move all the cars away and they get right back to the same business that they did in the, in the, in the first film that they produced using that as an ocean scene many, many years ago. And so when we look at the uh, Old Testament through the lens of Jesus Christ, and he says to us that neither heaven nor earth shall pass away, or heaven and earth will pass away before a single iota or a dot will pass from the law or until it is all accomplished, we learn one thing. Well, we learn something else. First, we learned that Jesus gave purpose to the past. Number two, we learn here in verse 18 that Jesus gave permanence to the past. The Bible isn't going anywhere. He gave purpose to the past, and he allowed his first audience, and us also as a secondary audience, to understand this, that old does not equal obsolete, and unfamiliar doesn't equal unnecessary. Old does not equal obsolete, and that unfamiliar doesn't equal unnecessary. Where am I going? When we were in this tour at the, at the, uh, at the Paramount Studios, there were so many things that they showed us that we, as the onlookers and just end users of movies, didn't know about. And it looked so unfamiliar. There were things that we had no idea that this is actually how they make shows. Or, and, and, and it looks, some of it looked ridiculous. Some of it looked outdated. Some of it looked as if uh, it should be thrown away. But the reality was it was still as functional today as it had been when they first built the movie studio. And what it proved to my heart was that just because something is unfamiliar doesn't mean that it's unnecessary. Just because I don't know what to do with it or I don't remember it or I don't know what movie that was from. And, and people in the audience who were with us on the tour, they were like, oh, yeah, I remember this movie and that movie. And there were movies that I was totally unfamiliar with, but there were others that I did know. But the beauty was that just because I wasn't familiar with the movie didn't make the things that I was seeing unnecessary because I didn't know about it. And so in Christ, he challenges us similarly. The Bible challenges us similarly. Here's my one basic application to take away from this text, that we should study the whole Bible to better understand the backstory of our redemption. We should study the whole Bible, not just the New Testament, not just our favorite verses, but we should study the whole Bible to get a better backstory. In other words, look at the Old Testament as if it were the prequel or the studio behind the scenes view of our redemption. There is just such rich history that we're totally unfamiliar with, but if brought forward and seen through the lens of Christ, it enlivens our hearts to see and to know something about the Lord Jesus Christ, and it increases the richness with which we see that. Now, having been into the studio, I watch movies differently because I'm on the lookout for certain details that I would have never looked for before. I'm not just focused on popcorn and giggles and laughs and, and horror, but now I'm looking at the screen intently to see if I can recognize some of the things that they showed me when I was backstage. And what I'm saying to you and I is that as we do Christianity together, as we do life in Christ and we're going out and we're getting very nuanced and we're getting new and we're getting exciting, make sure we're looking for the details that we have not made obsolete the things that were old or we have not abandoned and those things that are unfamiliar. Verse 19. Verse 19. Look at this one. It says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom. This lets us know that not only does Jesus give purpose to the past, or Jesus give permanence to the past, but it also lets us know that Jesus gives priority to self-reproduction. 
to self-reproduction, this idea that we as a lifestyle should be reproducing ourselves in others, making disciples. I mean, uh, the apostle Paul put it this way, if it could, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. You may not have this one on the screen, but I know that you know it. Listen to it carefully because this is the formal declaration of the gospel. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are saved. If you hold fast the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised, and on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he, was, he appeared to Cephas and was seen by the twelve. Hear me very carefully. Did you notice what Paul said? I'm giving to you exactly what I got. I didn't modify it. I didn't change it. And so when it comes to giving priority to self-reproduction, we must have certain non-negotiables, and it is a non-negotiable message that, that reproduces other believers. We're not trying to reproduce me. We're trying to reproduce those who would have faith in Christ. And that reproduction takes place through the simple declaration of the gospel as it was received. So even Paul, extremely skilled in the faith, didn't find it necessary to modify, to prop up, or to fix up the gospel to add anything to it or to take away from it. He had an absolute non-negotiable commitment to the message. But then we also know that Paul had a non-negotiable for something else. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, and the things that you have heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. He had a non-negotiable not only on the message, but he also had a non-negotiable around a certain motive when it came to gospel declaration and self-reproduction. But then there was a third thing that Paul says that I find phenomenal. When it comes to this whole creating a priority around self-production, self-reproduction, here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though myself not being under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are outside the law, I became as one who was outside the law, not being outside the law, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So while when it comes to placing the priority on self-reproduction, Paul has a non-negotiable when it comes to the message. Paul has a non-negotiable when it comes to the motive. We should be doing it. But he is absolutely flexible when it comes to the methods. Did you notice that? Did you notice that, that while he copies and pastes the message, he copies and pastes the motive. We must be making disciples and we must make them through the gospel. He is absolutely and totally looking at how he can best serve the target audience regardless of how they change and regardless of who they are. You see that? There is a, he is absolutely flexible on the methodology. Here's a phrase. I'll button it up this way. Jesus never asked the church to reinvent itself. He only asked that we reproduce ourselves. I uh, had an opportunity to preach um, in a couple of places in the mission field, but one of which really stands out to me was in the Philippines. I didn't speak their language. And so it was the first time that I ever preached with the accompaniment of an interpreter. And uh, immediately, uh, my self-righteousness was level set. Uh, so I go in and I'm preaching there in the Philippines and I've got this interpreter. And the first thing that I recognize is that in the Philippines, I'm not funny and I'm ne neither am I clever. 
My alliterations don't work. My jokes don't work. My illustrations don't land. Why? Because it's completely different cultural context, and the only thing I have to commit to is the gospel. The only thing I must commit to is that we must make disciples. And so even after the message was preached, so I've got to slow down and talk a whole lot slower than I normally do. And then I've got to explain things in ways that are completely different than I normally would. And I have to do it in ways that are uncomfortable to how I was trained, how I was discipled, how I was shaped, how I was raised. They're completely uncomfortable and unfamiliar to me, but they are totally necessary if I say that I'm committed to the declaration of the gospel. Because my methods and my motives, the things that I'm accustomed to doing it are not the non-negotiables. The non-negotiable is that we are making disciples in the Philippines or wherever country we get a chance to go, and we are going to do it through the gospel without any enhancements and without any reductions or subtractions. And so need to be completely flexible. So maybe for me, the stage or the tent wasn't the perfect place to share the gospel. Or maybe it was the perfect place to share the gospel, but then to go down and work the crowd and to talk to people one-on-one with the accompaniment of an interpreter. But being flexible enough to serve whoever the new target audience is and not assuming that because people came to Christ in the States or because people laughed in the States or people thought the illustrations were clever and cute in the States. I mean, the people in the Philippines haven't been to Paramount Studios. That would be a complete waste of time. But we have to be flexible when it comes to the Lord placing us in front of a new target audience. How do we become absolutely flexible? And the flexibility isn't about trying to achieve maximum creativity and attraction. It is about how do I serve them all that I might win some. And so Jesus never asked the church to reinvent itself. He only asked us to reproduce ourselves. But in that process of reproduction, we find the need to serve those in ways that might be totally and completely unfamiliar with how we have done it in the past. Verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Man, can you imagine Jesus' first audience? Remember, he didn't grab a crowd of the religious elite as his disciples. He grabbed fishermen, people who, when they thought about what it meant to honor and to please God, they would have looked to people like the Pharisees and the scribes, that they would have been uh, the front runners, the foregoers. They would have been the most moral person, the most moral people, and the most gospelly compliant, or not gospel, but those legally compliant people that they would have known. And for Jesus to drop this kind of bomb and say that unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven, how, Jesus? How can we live up to such a standard? How can you raise kingdom entrance so high? I mean, these guys who are out in front of us, they're practicing the law as a part of their daily jobs. We're just fishermen. How can you lay that out there on us like that? And so Jesus knows what he's doing, obviously. And what he's doing is, because Jesus would often preach through a device called hyperbole, right? You remember that? If your left eye offends you, pluck it out. If your left hand offends you, you know, cut it off. It'd be better for you to enter into the kingdom missing those members than to, uh, uh, to be whole and to not get in at all. Jesus had this wonderful way. You know, unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, you can't enter the kingdom. Jesus had a wonderful way of getting in people's faces with his words. And, and here, this is some light hyperbole, but there's some real words. There's a real message here that unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees. Now, the disciples and the first people listening to that, and even I, as I listen to those words, and I'm thinking about how 
compliant, how from a little boy, many Pharisees and scribes have been raised in that space. Could I, could I live up to that standard? Not in my own strength. You see, here it is. Jesus, is in his offering of a prohibition against self-righteousness, recognizes that when he says these words, the fleshly contemplation would be, well, do I have to compete with the Pharisees or do I have to compare with the Pharisees? Now, remember this. Even for us, who we don't live amongst Pharisees and scribes, it is quite common for us to have a false sense of self-righteousness, too, that believe that I'm okay with God because I'm at least better than the person, if not next to me, the person in the cubicle next to me. And if not in the cubicle next to me, in the neighborhood next to me. And if not in the neighborhood next to me, in the country across from me. Like we have, like, like the human beings are just built around making ourselves feel better by virtue of comparison. And so Jesus goes into and enters the ultimate comparison. Well, unless you are more righteous than these guys, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Ouch, that hurts. But I also want you to remember this, that Jesus isn't calling us or his disciples into a game of compete and compare, but he's calling us to study the scriptures in their entirety and remember and to understand this. I don't know if you've seen these words or not, but, but, but Abraham, in his conversation with the father, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, there's a passage there where the Lord approaches Abraham and he tells him, hey, guy. I'm going to use you. I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you a seed. And I want you to step outside your tent for a moment. And I want you to look at something. He tells him to look up at the sky. And he says, I want you to notice, I want you to number the stars if you can. And he says, your descendants will be more numerous than this. And the scriptures say that Abraham believed him and was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham goes down as the godfather of faith in the Old Testament because he believed God even though he was very aged. And how is it possible that a man that old could participate in God's will in that way? But he trusted God. He trusted God even against himself and his own abilities. Do you hear that? Abraham goes down in history as the godfather of faith because he recognizes that it takes absolute trust to please God regardless of how hard we're trying. Regardless of how hard we might try, because remember, Abraham did try. Remember, he went and conceived the child with Hagar, and God says, wrong, that's not it. Survey says no. The, the way that you follow my will is to trust me, not try harder. Now, are we saying that we should take our foot off the accelerator and try to live right? No, but it is trusting God has to be the start. The Scriptures tell us this, uh, in, in also the same passage is quoted, not only where Abraham uh, recognizes that he can't do what God wants him to do on his own, but it also tells us that it was accounted to him or it was imputed to him for righteousness. So I'll give you this phrase. Abraham is not only the godfather of faith, but he is also the poster child of imputation. If you don't know what imputation is, that is where God grants us righteousness because we don't have a righteousness of our own. And so Abraham is this beautiful pictorial of what Christ is doing and what God is doing through the church, both for two different generations, both the Old Testament and the New Testament generation. Because the idea of an imputed righteousness wasn't that big of a thing for the folks of the Old Testament because they figured they could please God just by following the rules. But in the New Testament, he shows us that not only do you have to lean on the example of Abram to be a person who trusts God fully with faith, but you must also believe God that he's the one who can make you righteous. I'll put it this way. Abraham pleased God because he recognized that he can't be, or we need to recognize that we can't be who God needs us to be unless God changes me. And I can't be what God wants. I can't do what God wants me to do unless he enables me. I'll say that again in a much cleaner way. 
If we follow the example of Abraham, who is the godfather of faith and the poster child of imputation, and we're thinking about this passage where Jesus says, there's no way to enter the kingdom of heaven unless my righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. How do I get that kind of righteousness? I can't gain it. I can't earn it. I can't work for it. I must trust God to give it. So here it is once again. If we follow Abraham's example, what we understand is that there is something that God wants me to be that I cannot be unless he changes me, and there's things that God wants me to do and I can't do unless he does it through me. And that is Abraham's story, but that's not just Abraham's story. That's also our story. We cannot please God on our own. Therefore, we need a Savior. We cannot, regardless of how hard we try, muster enough morality to make God look our way and say, attaboy, or well done, or that's my girl. There's no way that we can live such a moral life that it would raise the hairs on the back of God's neck because we don't have enough morality. The Bible also tells us that the Lord expects something from our lives that is far and above anything that we could possibly do or even imagine that what God has reserved for us and what he wants to do for us has not been seen by our eyes, nor has it been heard by our ears, or nor has it entered into our hearts. So how do we attain this life? How do we do life in such a way where our righteousness exceeds the Pharisees? How do we do life in such a way where God is glorified in our lives? We have to trust him entirely and follow him completely. And the way that we do that begins with Christ, not in ourselves. In Christ, when we come to him, it is by his grace that we recognize that, God, everything that I need must come from you, and everything that I am must be transformed by you, and everything that I do must be empowered by you, or else it is filthy rags before you. And so regardless of where we sit today generationally, regardless of how far we are from the Old Testament or in the New, regardless of where we are in our matriculation in the body of Christ and how many years we may have served, whether we're new to it or we've got many, many years, many laps around the track and much experience, the Bible constantly reminds us that who we are and what we are have to be constantly yielded back to God so that he can both repurpose our past, use it as he sees fit. And it's always a work of faith regardless of how familiar. I might be with the faith. I'll say that again. Life in Christ is always a work of faith, regardless of how familiar I might be with the faith. In America, we have the great privilege of our culture being saturated with Christian references. And because of that, one of our greatest sins is that familiarity. We believe that we know all that we need to know about the Lord Jesus Christ and the work of the church. And the moment that we get to that place, we are on thin ice because an effective life of faith is always going to be a life that doesn't boast familiarity with the faith, but that trusts God fully in faith. This is not a riddle. I'm just trying to let us know that we got to trust God regardless of how many years or how much knowledge we think we bring to the table. And so when we talk about respecting the past and building a better future, this isn't just a great non-negotiable or a mantra for a company that I used to work for. I think this is a great and beautiful thing to consider in the churches where we serve. Because unless we have a behind the scenes view of what the Lord did for us on the cross, we'll never appreciate what he wants to do through us in the future. That unless we maintain a healthy appreciation for the history of what God has done through his church, we'll never be able to really experience the full beauty of what he wants to do through his church. We can't abandon either. We need them both. And it is only in a focus on Christ that we can constantly marry the two and they not 
mess each other up. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you this morning. We thank you and we praise you for your great grace and mercy. We thank you, Lord God, for your word. We thank you for your truth, and we thank you for the work of your Son on the cross. And how it is, Heavenly Father, that he beautifully connects both the old and the new, that he is the fulfillment of the old, Heavenly Father, and he shows us that what is new is always, Lord God, what you intended for us. We beg and ask, O oh God, this morning that you would allow this message to land and not only raise our gospel sensitivities, O oh God, and how we need to individually trust you, but Lord so God, how we also need to collectively serve you. This we pray in the matchless and holy name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.